As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. It is NFL Draft Week. People think this might be the most watched draft ever because we're so desperate for an actual sporting event, and we're going to get into that in a second. We're going to get into an article I wrote for The Athletic on Tuesday about what a winter college football season might look like if it comes to that. Uh, but Bruce, our colleague Grace Rayner, who covers Clemson, tweeted shortly before we started recording, uh, Corey Foreman, number one player in the class of 2021, has decommitted from Clemson, person with direct knowledge tells The Athletic, distance from home played a factor for the defensive end and California native. Clemson has done a pretty good job the last couple years of uh, getting into California and getting some highly ranked guys from there. Do you feel like this is a sign that the coronavirus uh, situation in our country might cause some players to rethink going too far away from home. That's something that some coaches that I've talked to in the last couple of weeks have suggested. This is obviously the first one, and it's it's a big one. Who, who you know, that's in, that seems to be a factor. So obviously, we're in uncharted waters with this, but I think there's going to be a lot of elements that is probably going to make people rethink how they do certain things, and maybe that's a part of it. All right, turning our attention to the draft on Thursday night. Do you think Joe Burrow will be a star in the NFL? I'd feel better about it if he weren't going to the Bengals. Now, I, I made a joke about that recently on Twitter. And uh, this is from, from a Cincinnati native who grew up watching the Icky Woods, James Brooks, Boomer Esiason Bengals. That it's just a place that for people to go to ruin their careers. And somebody, an angry Bengals fan, pointed out that, hey, the last two quarterbacks they've drafted, Carson Palmer... And Andy Dalton did pretty well for themselves, so maybe I'm I'm overdoing it. But um, I Joe Burrow, how can you argue with what we just saw from him this past season? It was unbelievable. And while there were a lot of other factors, and we've talked about them ad nauseum, he's still he's still the one that had to get it done. We also said on the podcast though recently, and I said it myself. I'm if, if not for the hip injury, I would still be taking Tua. Um, I, I he did it for longer. It's not just one season. He's frankly one of the most amazing talents i've ever seen in person 
Um, and, and it's really, we'll see what happens Thursday night, but the notion that he might start falling down the uh, pecking order is astonishing to me. Again, but some of that could be, we don't know what kind of medical evaluations teams are doing. I mean, they're investing a fortune in these top 10 picks. If their doctors are saying, you know, maybe Yeah, I not, think they're getting... That shouldn't be astonishing, yeah. Well, I think they're getting gun-shy because in a normal year, they their own doctors could test, could 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 do the physical. Um, basically, I think they've, they've had to just rely on the one, um, the one that they that the player himself used well they still get evaluated at the combines too they do medical evaluations on that so i just think it's the progress of what may have happened in the last right. couple of weeks but i i still think well that was a that. long time ago and he got cleared to start throwing in early march so i'm sure they would have loved to be able to have their own doctors take a look at him in in april um so yeah i get it i mean it was a big injury if you remember at the time People were worried that it was going to be a career ender. Um, it sounds like Alabama just did their trainers and doctors did everything right in the first 24 hours to ensure that that it didn't become a, a Bo Jackson like situation. I've also seen people bring up, well, he's very injury prone. He he injured his hand, he injured both ankles, and he injured a hip. Are people really injury prone, or is it just really bad luck? Because I've we've seen the other side of it, where guys who were perfectly healthy in college went to the NFL and became and, and ended up having injury played careers. Yeah. I mean, I think that is an interesting point. Uh, here's a thing I would say to you though, is Tua didn't actually play that much more football than Joe Burrow did. I know people were going to say Joe Burrow is a one year wonder. Um, Cause he, he didn't really put up great numbers last year. I mean, Tua basically had the end of the, uh, you know, his most significant thing was the way he rallied them in the second half against Georgia had a terrific 2018, um, but it's not like he, you know, he basically played a year and a half, right? Yeah, and he played a lot of um, games where he was gone by halftime. So I, I do I, that does make you know that that does sound right. Joe Burrow played 15 games last year. It wasn't the, it wasn't like this? What to win a national title now is different than it is to win one back when even our buddy Matt Leinart played. You're playing more games. You're play, you're facing better teams because you have to go through a road to do that now. There's a conference championship game, and then there's two playoff games as opposed to one. So I do think that you know that that bodes well. I would argue, to me, Joe Burrow is the safest pick, knowing of his mental makeup, how he sees the field, his pocket presence, all those things. A lot of those things that, you know, would be defined somewhat as intangibles. Um, since Andrew Luck coming out of college, based on what I saw and the people I talked to who've worked with him. The other subplot to me that I think is very interesting in this draft is how deep it is at receiver. And I think there's going to be real impact guys who end up even going in the second round because it's deep. Um, in my story that's on The Athletic um, about the draft this week, one of the things is, to me, the clear-cut, surest thing is C.D. Lamb from Oklahoma. You know, we got to do a bunch of his games. I actually ended up doing even his first game that he played um, in his career. And this is a guy who wasn't the biggest recruit coming into OU because he didn't have, like, a wow 40 time. He was 175 pounds or so. Wasn't one of those guys who was at the opening or whatever. So he had that kind of chip on his shoulder. 
And just from talking to the guys on the Oklahoma staff, and I'm talking about guys on both sides of the ball, they talk about how tough he is, how hard he practices, and say things about him that you just usually don't hear people talk about a receiver that way. Uh, he's, a, he's a terrific return man. And for me, again, I'm not saying Jerry Judy won't be a really good NFL player or Justin Jefferson or Henry Ruggs, but I just think I'd be... If somebody's taken somebody else first, I'd be, man, I'd be leery of that because I think you're you're missing out on somebody who I think is is as close to can't miss as receivers get. Do you buy what I'm selling, or you got somebody else in mind who you think as a receiver is? No, I mean, people have asked me. I've done radio interviews where they asked uh, which receiver would you take, and I said C.D. Lamb because. I don't think it's as clear cut as you're making it seem. There's so many good receivers in this draft. Jerry Judy looked like a future NFL receiver. Like I remember watching the spring game when he was an early enrollee freshman. He looked amazing then. Like he's done everything you could ask of of a college receiver. But CD lamb, the reason I think I side with him is Jalen hurts was, was let's, you know, it was a little deceiving. He still put up good stats, but he definitely wasn't, uh, Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray for Oklahoma's offense last year. And there were just so many times you'd watch the games and it was almost like CeeDee Lamb was bailing him out. CeeDee Lamb was the one making the big plays. I think of the Big 12 title game for, for one. Uh, like he, To me, he was as much, if not more, the reason that offense was successful as the quarterback was. Whereas with the Alabama guys, it's a little harder to separate between how much of that was Tua, how much of that was Jerry Judy, how much of that was Henry Ruggs and... Jalen Waddle and Devontae Smith, um, they're just a little more crowded, right? But gosh, the list, I, I can't remember a draft where the list of receivers who are like, yeah, I think that guy's going to be really good. Is Give me so a guy long. who's probably not a first-round graded receiver who you think, man, I'm surprised the NFL, the NFL mock draft guys aren't higher on this guy. Well, I know he, he was injured a lot, but when LaVisca Chenault was healthy, he was an unbelievable receiver. I, I, Dane Brugler, our draft expert, has him going 48th to the Jets. Um, healthy LaVisca, to me, was right up there, not far separated from the guys we were talking about before. He's one where he fits into what you, you said earlier about Tua, where people are like, is he injury prone? I got to admit, LaVisca is an awesome athlete. When you see him, he looks like a linebacker. The issue I think that people have, and I know this from talking to some NFL personnel people, is he seems to get injured a lot. And I think there was some some hesitation on that, where it's like he's physical and he looks the part, but then he, there's a lot of nagging injuries. So it wouldn't surprise me if LaVisca had some moments where like, wow, he's making some plays in the NFL. But I would also wonder, you know, is he going to be a guy that that NFL teams will be able to rely on to, to last through the whole season and, and be able to play. I, I, that one, I'm actually not as surprised that he is not a first round pick just because of some of those concerns. Who's your guy? My guy is Michael Pittman also in the PAC 12 from USC. He is the, he is the one where nobody questions his toughness. I mean, he could have played linebacker. I talked to both Graham Harrell and Kerry Colbert who've worked with him a lot and whenever I've talked to them, they just talk about what a nasty blocker he is, loves special teams. I remember uh, when USC had to play Matt Fink basically the whole game. It's a Friday night. There's a lot of pressure on, on that program. 
And Michael Pittman dominated Utah in that game. He completely took it over. Again, they were basically down to their four-string quarterback. He was like, just throw me the ball, and I'm just going to take it away from these guys. And he did that, and that left an impression on me. I just think that he is so physical and such a kid who loves football that I think he's going to be a guy people will count on in a big way. I'm not saying he's going to go to you know, 10 Pro Bowls, but I think he's going to be a guy who's going to be a big impact guy um, because of all the things he brings beyond that. So before we duck out of the draft, I wanted to kind of go through some guys I think are bargains, at least where they're related. You know, and I use Dane's mock draft and thinking, oh, this guy should be higher than that. And I assume you don't have it in front of you. So I'm going to play a little game and you tell me where you think they would be, okay? How do you know I don't have it in front of me? Because we're playing the honor code game, and I just don't think you'll be scrolling down for these guys, <laughs> Stu. Okay. Um, and I'm going to go to guys I think are you're you know locked in on, not like some randoms. But uh, Kenny Willickis, over under of 100, meaning that he was drafted, a, mocked in the top 100 or below. I bet he's, so 100 is what, third round? I bet he's, I bet he has him lower than that. How much lower? 150? Like 130? Yeah, 152nd, which surprised me because he's pretty explosive and athletic and he plays his butt off. I think he will find a way to make a lot of plays on third downs. I I think if you get him at 152 where Dane has him going, I think that's a great value. Devin Duvernay. The number I will give you is 125, higher or lower? Slightly higher. Slightly higher. Uh, Did you see that one? Because that's slightly higher. Okay. Uh, And then the last one I want to do is KJ Hill, Ohio State receiver. You know how deep this draft is? 150. Uh, KJ Hill is probably like a fourth rounder. Yeah, I feel like you're cheating on me still. Um, yeah, uh, I have to right. confess, I was doing some research for my mailbag on which schools will put the most guys in the draft, so I did see where KJ Hill was. Okay, thank you for that. All right. Um, and the last, last thing we talk about the draft, how closely will you pay attention to it? Honestly, more closely than I usually do. Um, I usually turn, watch the beginning of the first round and kind of, Maybe start doing some other things and check back on it occasionally. Because remember, it does move very slowly. Um, and then I feel like I end up watching a lot of the last day because it moves very fast. And it's like a lot of guys that we know well from college that maybe they're not considered big-time draft prospects, but we know them. Uh, but, man, I, I'm gonna, I might watch every minute of the first round this year. Why wouldn't I? What else am I going to do? Yeah. What's, what is a sporting event that you have – watched somebody rebroadcast in the last week or two i'm curious which what maybe you got sucked into uh well homer pit homer pick here but i got a text one night from my buddy who's like turn on espnu they're replaying the 95 rose bowl uh so i probably watched about a quarter and a half of that um wait there was another more recent game uh a northwestern game or a football game no football game it was from last season uh it was 
Not the Northwestern Stanford game. It was <laughs> God no. Oh, it was the Iron Bowl. Um, which remember how wild a game that was? Uh, I got sucked into that a little bit, but I, I actually have not been watching a lot of um, replayed sporting events. Now I did watch part one of the Jordan documentary. I assume you did as well. I did watch one and two. Um, I'm I'm wondering I, if so. It's you know as we've talked about in the past, you get a warped sense of things on Twitter. Everybody, everybody in my Twitter timeline raving about this Jordan documentary, and I I watched it a day later. And I don't know if it's because I lived it. Like, I was in Chicago during the time they're talking about reading about the Bulls every single day. But at least in part one, there was nothing in it that was, like, new to me. Um, I wonder if your experience of it differs. A, if you're a Bulls fan, you must just absolutely love it. Uh, But also, like, you know, we're in our 40s. Well, one of us is in our 40s. Uh, if you're if you're 25 and you didn't get to watch Michael Jordan when he was actually playing, this must be unbelievable. Well, I, one thing I didn't realize was, or at least I don't remember it, but I I don't think I knew it was the part when Jordan got hurt and then he goes back to North Carolina, starts playing, and there's a great uh, soundbite from the Bulls front office talking about like if there's a 10 percent chance. You know, it's basically like, it's a 10% chance you could die. Would you do it, you know, if you had a headache? And he was like, depends how bad the fucking headache hurts. <laughs> and I was like, what a, you know, I was like, that was a, a great, you know, window into him and into what was going on there. That was something I didn't know. I also think there was some elements where it gets very nostalgic. When, you know, all of a sudden it's like there's a, I think it was when, um, you know, I remember Sidney Moncrief, I, you know, as a great player, certainly a great defensive player. So he was talking about the Bucks' third, his third game again, and it's the Bucks, and it was like, I can't stop this guy. And all of a sudden, it was like, you know, it's kind of that, that, that great line from Jaws. You know, it's like you're going to need a bigger boat. It was like, wait a minute, this guy's way better than we thought, right? Because he just completely destroyed, arguably the best defensive player in the NBA. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, music kicks in and it's Eric B and Rakim and it's that era stuff. And, you know, you're, you know, the hairs on your arms start to stick up. I think that's the part that really kind of sucked me in, you know. Um, and I think it's it's different than a game like, you know, as as you know, when I asked you about what you've watched and what you like, there's elements of this where uh, I don't know, it's probably a week and a half ago that. It, they re-aired the Kirk Gibson Homer game. And I remembered where I was when that, you know, I had, I don't think I had any rooting interest in that at that point. Um, and just like, you know, my son's in the room. I was like, you need to watch the end of this, you know, kind of thing. And, you know, first of all, he's looking at it, go, why is it so blurry? And I was like, listen, that's low def TV. You know, we've had this conversation, just watch it, you know, kind of thing. But you, you know, you see the moment and, it was very cool. I also thought it was very cool afterwards. I think SportsCenter had Kirk Gibson on. He's dealing with some real health issues as he's been. Obviously, um, you know, he he was a great football player too at Michigan State. But I just thought, you know, kind of the context of all that really mattered. And I've gotten sucked into a lot more of those old sporting events than I thought. I mean, I watched a bunch of a bunch of uh, Colts Patriots last night from like the Peyton Manning days when it was like, Oh yeah, that's when, you know, Tom Brady was, 
was still really good, but I don't, you know, it was whatever, five years into his career as opposed to, you know, what we see him, him now. And so it's fascinating to see all these things. I mean, I watched a North Dakota State, both their game to get into the title game and then the title game itself with a different perspective because I just wrote about Trey Lance, their quarterback. And so, like, even though that's not a very old game, I just think that, you know, it's good to have these kinds of things to access as as big sports fans, I guess. We should note you have a six-year-old son who, even before lockdowns, was all about watching replays of, of old football games. So, you know, maybe maybe that's contributing to the number of hours of this you're watching. You know, it could. It certainly makes it, you know, a little more family-specific on stuff like that. But, I mean, you know, it's like you find elements you're like, you're, um, you know, that the NFL game I was talking about with the Colts and, and the Patriots from 2005. It's like, whoa, here's John Madden doing a game. You know, it's like, you know, you're just kind of maybe rediscovering little elements of this. I mean, I know you're not a golf fan, but it was really cool to still watch the, the Masters when Tiger won it last year. Uh, you know what's going to happen and just you kind of see threads of it, you know, in a different light as it's happening. It's just, it's just, um, you know, I, I think a lot of fans are so thirsty for what we love about sports. And then, as you said, you know, the, the communal aspect of the, and I guess you didn't watch it as in real time, but the communal aspect of watching something when everybody else is watching it, like it was with the Jordan documentary the other night, I think was adds to it just a little bit oh yeah i i I do hope i can watch future ones or most of the future ones in real time just mostly for that reason that's why i'm looking forward to the draft on thursday night one more observation from the jordan doc by the way this wasn't on our agenda so you're hearing us think about this on the fly um so granted a documentary romanticizes things but nature right but i do kind of remember it this way i was a diehard Knicks fan when I was a teenager. So I, I was probably one of the only people that was rooting against the Bulls and Jordan. But it did seem like, and it certainly comes off this way in the documentary, that Michael and the Bulls were just so beloved. Like, people just loved that team and loved him. And I just started thinking about the contrast between the way they were kind of fawned over during their run versus being out here and the Warriors during their run quickly became villainized to fans around the country and you know lebron has been for god knows how many years this polarizing guy who half the country roots for and half the country can't stand and like just it was an interesting thing to me about how much and i don't know if that's just media coverage or the way fans consume it is that social media advancing where you hear people's voices i mean look people hate the patriots People, you know, a lot of people hate Alabama and resent Alabama. I think that's just kind of where we are right now. Well, some of that has always been there. I mean, there's always been a, I mean, the Lakers Celtics, Lakers Celtics in the 80s. Yeah, that was people. A lot of people hated Larry Bird and hated the Celtics, but there was something about MJ, right? He was just so transcendent. Uh, People loved him. Hey, by the way, before we get, before we get to your uh, winter football story, the how the Cincinnati guy becomes a diehard Knicks fan. It wasn't like it was like in the Willis Reed era Knicks. Were you like a huge Pat Cummings fan, and then just kind of <laughs> yes, actually. I, in. So the story, the the chronology of it is: I was born in 1976. I start becoming aware of sports and basketball in general around 83, 80, no, more like 84, I think. 
the Knicks were terrible then. And you just named it. It was Pat Cummings. Bernard King was their one good player. Uh, Pat Cummings, uh, Trent Tucker. Who else was on those teams? Ernie um, Grunfeld. This is not This is not like a murderer's row here you're putting together. No, look, there was no NBA team in Cincinnati. Rory Sparrow. My dad was from Long Island. Did you have like a Pat Cummings poster on your wall? Are there even... Did, did you just even... say Rory Sparrow? Yeah. Oh my gosh, I haven't thought of that name in 30 years. That's awesome. Uh, that is the first NBA team I remember rooting for. It was that team? Was the team you're describing with those guys on it? No, my dad was from Long Island, and who who moved to Cincinnati for his first job after college. He mostly switched to the Cincinnati teams, but he was still a diehard Knicks fan. So I became a diehard Knicks fan, and you know when they went vividly remember when they got Patrick Ewing. Um, uh, lived and died. I mean, my memory of high school is a lot of staying up late to watch Reggie Miller dash the Knicks hopes and certainly Jordan and Charles Smith missing like five shots in a row in game seven of the Eastern Conference Finals. And then, you know, obviously the Rockets series. But uh, I mean, I, I lost my allegiance to the Knicks probably at this point almost 20 years ago. But but the, the, that's what's interesting about the Jordan doc is it like when they showed there was a scene, there's a montage very early in the first episode of all of their first five finals victories. And like that's basically mirrors exactly when I was the most into the NBA. So it is a cool trip down memory lane that way. All right, Stu, let's go down, not memory lane, but in a different, I don't want to call it a fantasy world, but who knows where this is all heading with the lockdown as it relates to college football and college sports. But you you really kind of kick the can on on a what-if scenario that a lot of people within the sport are actually kind of trying to wrap their heads around, and that is what would happen if the season got delayed to the point where, as the window you started was, basically it would start January 1st. Um, why don't you set people further down the road on on kind of the parameters of that and what you came away with? Right. So this story went up on Tuesday on The Athletic, How to Play a College Football Season During the Winter. It's mostly a fantasy scenario. You have to, you know, you have to start with some some assumptions that we just don't know what whether they'll be true or not about where we will be at that point in, in fighting the pandemic. But, you know, basically... We, we, we saw last week that the the phone call with the vice president they made it very clear it's not gonna they're gonna have to have students back on campus if they're gonna have to have college football games and you know we're right up against it already a lot of schools are already uh, are already doing online only up through early August you know if, if if even a few major football playing schools decide it's not safe to open for fall semester it's gonna probably, I know people have talked about like a delay, like a starting a month late, or, or but like to me, it's if they can't come for fall semester, then it kicks the can down to, to January to second semester. So um, you've seen some people say, oh, they'd wait till the spring when it's warmer. Uh, my thought was, it basically, I, I this started by working backwards. If like if you're going to have to move this to second semester, you're going to have to try to get it done before the NFL draft, or you're going to have no seniors or certainly no seniors with draft aspirations playing at all um, because they have to at least get some sort of prep for the draft done so working backwards i was like you need to you can't start it in february you have to start it january and if you're going to do that how cool would it be we're all pent up desperate for college football 
if we start the season on New Year's Day. Where New Year's Day, instead of being about the bowl games, it would be all of the best, not all, but most of the best kind of marquee non-conference games. Because my scenario is a 10-game season where you have to chop out some game, a couple non-conference games. But, the, but presumably you would preserve Ohio State, Oregon, uh, Michigan, Washington, USC, Alabama. And, so, and suddenly you'd be playing a lot of those on New Year's Day. So are you, are you saving uh, North Dakota State, Oregon? That would be up to Oregon. <laughs> um, first of all, it would be up to the conferences if they're going to stick. Like if you're the Pac-12, are you still going to play nine conference games and only one non-conference? Or you just play eight and two? Um, I, my hope would be you would do eight and two just because I feel like, like how are we going to really know how good the teams are if they don't have any chance to measure themselves against teams from other conferences but 10 11 week window starting january 1 to play 10 games in a conference championship and one wrinkle there is as i was talking to some people about the feasibility of some of this stuff is um the last weekend of this regular season is going to be the weekend of conference tournaments in basketball and selection sunday and they're like we couldn't you know we they can't logistically host a conference championship in football and a conference basketball tournament the same weekend so so it would actually be nine weeks then the conference championships and then your last non-conference game the week after the conference championship the coolest thing to me in this calendar is at that point you go into the break for the bowl games which aligns perfectly with the start of march madness you let march madness have its center stage for three weeks and then you come back and you host the playoff semifinals in what would be an absolutely epic sports weekend the first weekend of April. Final four Saturday, college football playoff semifinals on Sunday, college basketball national championship Monday, uh, the Masters are the next weekend, and then that next Monday night college football national championship game. All right, Stu, one of the things that has come up uh, that, that you said, and obviously this is all hypothetical, but... If there was an all clear where their health officials and university presidents and everybody said, okay, we can resume, we can start a college football season. Uh, let's say we could start at December 1st or December 10th. You would start it ASAP. You would start it as soon as possible. You wouldn't delay it till get to like the, the start of January, right? But you need time for the players to come back and obviously, uh, yeah, no, I get yeah. that part. I'm saying so. My, if, my th- once, reason once was, that six or seven week window was, I'm saying yeah. My, so I went January first and then worked backwards. Basically, the decision to open the schools for the spring semester would probably be made in around November. And if they say okay, all clear, then that's when the players come back for training camp. Okay, so so two things. One, um, one of the questions because this has actually come up quite a bit with people was, okay, it's it's the winter. There's places like Minnesota and Iowa, certainly a lot of Big Ten places. Uh, Colorado fits in that, uh, where the weather is. We're not talking about it's cold for people wherever you live. It's where it's frigid where they are, where the average temperature in some of these places in February is in the low 20s as opposed to yeah it's probably in the in the high 30s in the end of the regular season normally so okay so and and i've talked to people both on the tv side as well as people in the sport um and because you had mentioned in your story about dome stadiums and one of the things that i got i was thinking about in regard to that was 
I've been to plenty of indoor facilities where teams practice. And I was like, okay, if you went under the premise that they wouldn't need, if, and you did, this is something, you know, a separate issue. Um, if they were going to do games without fans, and we know that Gene Smith, Jack Swarbrick, and a lot of coaches are not in favor of that. Um, but if they did do that, would indoor facilities be an issue? And so I'd ask some, some coaches at places that have it, because there's two things that usually, you know, if you're not going to have fans would preclude it. One, some places have indoor facilities that actually aren't the full hundred yards with end zones, as well as a lot of places I've been, you can't punt. You can punt, but the ball will hit the ceiling and it just, you know, it impedes it. I think one of the few places like Colorado, for instance, like their end zones are cut off a little bit. You actually couldn't play a regulation game there. I think, and I don't know this for sure because I didn't check with Northwestern. I think your alma mater is one of the few places that probably could play a game at, at its uh, indoor facility if if it came to that without fans. But I can't imagine there are that many that have that kind of flexibility. Yeah, I mean, that one is really big. But no, the reason I never took indoor facilities seriously is they're really only meant for one to host one football team, right? So if you're talking about you have to have another locker room for the visiting team, you got to have enough sideline space for two full teams. Like I never even cons- really considered. That's why I went all in on domes. And I literally researched, I, I Google mapped the distance from every FCS, FBS school to their nearest dome. And by the way, it's not just, you know, the ones you think of, the NFL domes. I'm talking like, there's one, there's one that's in the lead of the story that East Tennessee State, did you know this? East Tennessee State has a 9,000 seat indoor multi-purpose facility where you can play a, you could play a football game. I think the locker room issue is probably one that, that is a workaround for them relative to some of these other things. It's just the, you know, having a long enough stadium, uh, having a high enough facility, you know, to, to do those things are the other challenges. The last thing I was going to ask you is, I think you had said in your story that if there were no bowl games, a lot of bowl games would go under financially. Could you can you kind of go into a little more detail because I think that's probably one that would catch a lot of people's ears. Right. And so that's why I do have a full bowl season with the with the other bowls kind of being played worked around the um the playoff games. Uh that that's something I the two different bowl officials said to me that they thought if Basically, they were talking more about if there was no football season at all, that a lot of them just wouldn't, they would go out of business. Um, now, you could say maybe they're being alarmists, but I do think that, you know, the Rose Bowl, the, the, the big bowls have enough money in reserve and enough people who are kind of champions of them that they would, they would be fine. But I don't think people realize, like, a lot of those middle to lower tier bowls, you know, out of 40 bowls, I would say maybe... 10 to 12 actually make a profit. Most of them are just like barely, barely make enough money to just run the thing every year. So yeah, if you go a full year where you have no, no ticket revenue, no, no, like not a single dollar is coming in, right? The only way they make money is to have a football game. Uh, then you, you wouldn't be able to have a stat. You'd have to go out of business. You wouldn't be able to pay your staff. Um, and so that's, I think that's why they're saying that now, some of the really low-end ones are owned by ESPN, and if ESPN wanted to just take the loss for that year and keep them going, they really wanted to have another, you know, we'll, we'll just do the Bahamas Bowl again next year. 
yeah, that would work. But but like, I mean, I think it would be crushing to uh, the Belk Bowl, the Independence Bowl, um, that that tier of bowl games. Oh, it's not the Belk Bowl anymore. Whatever it's going to be called this year. All right. Uh, again, it's a fa- it's a fascinating kind of study into this and. Look, hopefully it hopefully it won't come to that. Hopefully our the season. Hopefully it never has to be used. Yes, hopefully the season will start on time. Um, Back to the podcast in a second, but first a word about our sponsor, the Black Tux. The Black Tux believes every groom deserves a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear, a suit or tuxedo for their big day. Did you know the Black Tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you could imagine? Turns out they aren't alone in this frustration. Just listen to these one-star reviews from competitor tuck shops that shall not be named. Quote, go elsewhere. This place is pretty terrible unless you're dressing like your grandpa for Halloween. Ouch. We felt weird buying a suit from somebody so unhappy we were afraid his bad vibes might follow us to our wedding day. So we left. Whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at the Black Tux. If you want your wedding to remember for the right reasons, order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with the code CFB10. That's theblacktux.com, code CFB10 for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. Let's get to the mailbag. As always, you can send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Stu, I'm going to read this first question from your former stomping ground in Brooklyn. It's Greg Selig. Howdy, gents. Hope you both are safe and well these days. Hope you are too, Greg. Thank you. This question was prompted by Kalen Jones's article in The Athletic. The best Texas Longhorn team of the past 25 years is. I was surprised to find that the simulation had the 05 team just ahead of the 08 team, which is a certain subset of Texas fans consider the best of the Colt McCoy years. What other teams in college football do you remember, like like Horns fans think of that 2008 team? A truly great team, but some circumstance tripped them up along the way, uh, resulting in tragic oblivion. Yeah, I mean that OA team just such a, that was such an unusual circumstance where the three way tie in the Big Twelve South, and somebody had to somebody who lost to somebody had to be the one to go to the conference championship game, and ended up, and it was Oklahoma who Texas beat. But that was a really good. Really good Texas team whose only loss was on a last-second catch by Michael Crabtree. I actually think of another team that same year, the 2008 USC team with Mark Sanchez and Brian Cushing and Ray Malaluga. And just by the end of the season, they were they were unbelievable. But they lost on a Thursday night to Oregon State early in the season, and they never came back from it. Like they never, if you remember, they never got taken seriously again uh, in the national title conversation. And yet, I think if you were to ask Pete Carroll who who was your best teams while you were at USC, that one would be very high on the list. Um, yeah, I think that's you know, I was I was a big believer in that Texas team, you know, going back. And as you know, I, I don't know, it was just it was a crazy season all around. I mean, you mentioned that Crabtree game; it was certainly certainly part of that. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's been teams that shared. I I look at at um, I look at, you know, the Ohio State team, I guess it was 2015 that didn't win. And it was the it was the Michigan State game that really tripped them up. Right. So um, I don't know. I, I think that was one of the most talented teams we've seen that at least in the last decade that came up short. 
I think that's definitely a team that Ohio State fans regard the way Texas fans do the 08 team. Like, what a missed opportunity that was, considering how loaded that team was. What about if you go all the way back to 2000, Miami loses an early season game to Washington, but then beats Florida State, runs the table from there, really sets the table for that 2001 run, and then misses out on the national title game to the Florida State team that they beat. Yeah, that was definitely a fascinating little one, too, as well. Um, I'm curious, because if they had done that, I would think that maybe Ed Reed and some of those guys might have left earlier then because they had won their national title. I mean, I don't know that for a fact, but I wonder if that would have changed changed their course on that a little bit. Um, All right, this next one's from Benoit in Montreal, Quebec. Guys, thank you for keeping the show going. Go Thank you for keeping the show going during these tough times. We can all use the distraction while we ride this out. Question, why do college football coaches move around so much? Is it that coaches are mercenaries, always looking for their next big pay raise, or is the pressure to win so big that colleges are always looking for the next hot coach and have no patience, or a combination of those two things? And also, since coaches move around so much, do they keep a secret personal cell phone with their inner circle of contacts where they can be reached in between jobs? And how many of those secret phone numbers are in Bruce's phone. That's funny. When I when I saw that question, I dawned on me. I have like a few coaches where they're listed as new, newer, and so and so. Where it's like I have four or five cell phones <laughs> for them. Um, and I it got to the point where with one particular coach, I just have it, his number listed by by the um, the calendar date that I put in there. So and so as of January. 2017 uh and it's just that's just kind of the way it is as to benoit's question i think it is a combination of all those but i would use dana holgerson's a good example of this where he left and where a lot of people were like that is that even a lateral job where he goes from west virginia to houston but i think you know when you've been somewhere for a while and especially if there's a little bit of friction and in his case it was quite quite a bit of friction between him and the ad there i think it was you know it was, a, it was about resetting your clock because i think he looked at the situation was like wow and this is look we i think you and i both agree neil brown's a terrific coach but he walked into a situation where they were losing a lot of really good players and there was going to be more than a hiccup for that team and he left and so i i think what happens to is uh a lot of times coaches see the landscape of how things are not only do people get tired of each other after four or five years plus um i think it's also you see the limitations of the place you're working at is whereas you go someplace else you're like oh they may do some of these changes because they want to get me and i think that factors into it as well i I think I, i think it's actually not much of a mystery with head coaches i think one thing and i don't know if this is what benoit is getting at is these assistant coaches who are just constantly seem to change jobs every year every two years and you would think it's just like so especially if you have a family so hard to just pack up and leave every couple years because for what a slight opportunity up i'll give you a recent example tim brewster who after he got fired as head coach at minnesota in 2010 he spent one year at mississippi state four years at florida state one year at texas a&m one year at unc and now he's at Florida. And all of these were just from one position coach job to another to another. Stu, the next question from Brad Newman. 
I think many sports fans are now aware that the NCAA makes most of its money from March Madness. I know there are a lot of things about college football that do not make sense, but the fact that the NCAA administrators administers so many aspects of football but makes no revenue from the billion-dollar postseason seems like such a broken model. Could the NCAA realistically take on the ownership of the playoff and bowls, perhaps sharing revenue with the bowls and conferences? Would the end of this current CFP create an opening for this shift? Stu, I think you're going to explain to Brad there's one key piece that I think he may be overlooking to this. Well, the conferences themselves completely own the postseason. Why would they give that up to the NCAA? Um, it's one of those weird situations where the same schools that are that are controlling the CFP are also members of the NCAA, right? Um, which one takes precedent? But I, I don't think there's any means for the NCAA to just seize control of it. And for the reason, unless the NCAA gave, unless the NCAA gave these same universities an ultimatum, whether you're you're either all the way in or you're not in, and right. I don't know why the NCAA would necessarily do that. I don't think that's going to happen. There's just too much money involved to 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 trigger that. It's almost like you're you would kind of be begging them to say, "Hey, you got to play by our rules." I would be curious. Would be is what would happen if they did do that ultimatum? I think people would be surprised how little the NCAA has to do with football. Um, you have to obviously your players have to be deemed eligible by the NCAA. Um, there's an you know there's a rule book right for the officials that the NCAA establishes. Um, those bowl games have to be licensed by the NCAA, but the requirements for that are like bare bones minimum. Other than that, I mean, most of college football is run by the commissioners and the conferences. So. You know, when they decided to, to go from the BCS to the playoff, the people at those meetings were the co- commissioners of the conferences, uh, Bill Hancock and Jack Swarbrick, Notre Dame's AD. They're the, I don't think Mark Emmert was in any of those meetings. So it's just it's something that goes back so far it's like impossible to unwind. I mean, the college football postseason, the first Rose Bowl was played before the NCAA existed. So it's just it's just kind of the way it's always been. And I don't, there's no incentive. There's no incentive for the schools to to change that, right? Like, because the scenario he's describing, they don't make more money off it. It's, they would. His scenario is the NCAA would keep more of the money for themselves, and so they wouldn't be so dependent on March Madness. So, uh, it's a it's a it's a weird, weird, weird dysfunctional relationship where the schools depend on the NCAA to run the basketball tournament for them. And all the other, you know, the the soccer championship, the swimming championships, all of those, the NCAA runs. But in their most signature, most visible one, football, they basically, the NCAA is completely out of the loop. I once saw the the dollar amount that the NCAA gets from the college football postseason, and it was comical. I don't remember what it was, so I don't want to, like, mischaracterize it. But it was, like, you know, basically a a non-factor, so... That's just the way it has. It's one of those things where that's the way it's always been. We'll we'll end with Lane Hammond. Can we expect some longevity for Joe Burrow's 60 touchdown passes and 65 total touchdowns in a single season? It seems to me you would have to play 15 games, have a suspect defense for the first half of the year so as not to get taken out of the games, and a not great running game to keep the ball in your hands. Is that a record that will never be broken? I think it'll be broken. Look, you know, one thing that we saw from Joe Burrow especially was 
they went five wide, go empty, and if we got a trigger man who can see it and attack it, we're going to just be aggressive and you're going to have to keep up. And I think that's going to happen. Now, obviously, there's an element of you have to play a lot of games. It can't just be a 12-game season. It gives you more window. But I definitely think that's possible. Now, it may not, be, may not be from another SEC quarterback, but I could see somebody at a Conference USA or a Sunbelt school who throws it all over the place, uh, keep racking it up. I mean, it, again, it would not surprise me given the the direction football's headed in, much less college football's headed in. Yeah, I, it, it, I'm not saying it's going to happen again next year. Or I, I, it might be a long time. I don't know. What's going to be I – mean, we, we've been, you know, kind of putting talk of college football actual season on the back burner recently. But one of the things I was going to be most interested in or will be most interested in is how many coaches – I mean, what do they – they spend the offseason studying other teams – are going to try to emulate what LSU did on offense last year. Um, we had a podcast early in uh, January with Dave Aranda, uh, now Baylor's head coach. He was LSU's defensive coordinator last season, and it was the best explanation I've heard of why that Joe Brady offense was so um, uh, revolutionary. Like what was things that they were, he was drawing up on a chalkboard that he'd never seen done before. So if you have a really good quarterback and you run that offense, you too might put up some numbers like that. Also, keep in mind, though, you know, there was some balance there. I mean, Clyde ran for over 1,400 yards, had, I think, 16 rushing touchdowns. So if somebody goes even more in on the pass game, and there's certainly Mike Leach disciples out there who might go that route, maybe not to the degree Leach does, I think there's, a, there's certainly a chance somebody could, could hit that number. I mean, to me, that's not, um, you know, that's not, I, I think this would probably be a story we, we should do is look at, uh, and certain stats weren't kept. It's not like they kept sack stats, uh, you know, forever, but to see what would be the most unbreakable record in college football, I'd be curious what we'd, what we'd find on some of that, at least in terms of FBS. By the way, the year before, Dwayne Haskins threw 50 touchdowns in 14 games, and that wasn't even... Um, you know, well, I wouldn't say, I mean, they threw the ball a lot that year, um, but it wasn't obviously the scheme that LSU, the Saints passing game scheme that LSU installed. The most, I'm off the top of my head, it seems to me the most unbreakable record is Barry Sanders' 1988 rushing total. Uh, and it, by the way, I should preface it by saying we're talking individual records, not, you know, Oklahoma winning every game for like what felt like a decade kind of thing. You see, we've seen running backs recently. I, I mean, people break 2,000 yards, maybe get up to 2,100, but he ran for 2,628 yards. So in an era, and, and he did it in 11 games, by the way. That's, that's the part. It was the yeah. yards per game thing. Because Melvin Gordon got close to it, actually. I think Melvin Gordon got really close, right? Um, Hang on a second. Was I, I think that one, I want to say that Melvin was like, Gordon got twenty five eighty seven. Melvin Gordon came within forty yards of it, forty one yards of it. I did not realize that. Wow. Yeah. Um, you're right. It's the so it's going to be the yards per game. The fact that he did that in eleven games. By the way, just as I didn't realize this, but um, Marcus Allen actually was real close to Barry Sanders' record. Marcus Allen twenty four twenty seven. That was basically two hundred yards less. I mean, it's not that close, but it's like. 
I mean, the way the Barry Sanders number to me looks, it was almost, you know, it's almost like a, uh, like a three, five, 40, <laughs> you know, it just seemed like it just stood out so much. And then I'm looking at it and I'm like, wow, Marcus Allen had a pretty mind blowing season as well. And that there's very few teams that just run the ball enough. I mean, it's not a coincidence that the ones that stand out recently are Wisconsin running backs. Cause they're one of the few teams that still have running backs that run the ball 30, 35 times a game. Um, and maybe, maybe at some point college football will cycle back to that. But right now it becomes more of a, quarterback game every year you know what's interesting too as we dig into that um marcus allen ran the ball i'm just looking at this 433 times that year what season was that 81 81 that is an insane amount of carries i feel like if somebody did that now every they would just be like oh you're you're ruining this guy's hopes for the NFL. You're going to break his body. Yeah, obviously, it worked out well for Marcus Allen in the NFL, though. So it did. It did. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure. There's a somebody's going to have to do a study for me to show if there really is a direct correlation between number of carries in college and you know how long you're able to last in the NFL. Yeah. How about Case Keenum putting up twenty thousand yard career yards of offense? Um, which was helped in part by the fact that he got a sixth year of eligibility and basically played five seasons. Yeah, and that's that was in the back of my head of something that could be that way, you know, where you're talking about like have those kinds of, um, you know, that kind of that kind of production if they go all in on it. I think that is exactly the kind of situation where somebody uh, could could eclipse sixty. How many carries did you say Marcus Allen had? Four thirty three. There is a college football player from 2007 who had more than that. Can you guess it? Uh, Jordan Lynch? No. Running back. Give me a conference. Uh, they are currently in the AAC. I don't remember what they were in then. Huh. Currently in the AAC... I was trying to think of who ran the ball a ton then. It was not who would not be Navy. I don't think you're going to guess it. Um, it Kevin wait a Smith from Kevin oh yeah, Smith. Kevin Smith was close to was close to uh, was close to Melvin Gordon. Was close to Barry Sanders in the rushing total. I didn't realize he carried it that many times. Yep. So uh, that's the NCAA record: 450 carries for 2,567 yards, 14 games. All right. Well, looking forward to Thursday night. Some actual uh, sports news we'll have to talk about after that. Uh, And then we're going to have to start thinking about how on earth we're going to fill May, June, July. But uh, for now, I'm looking forward to the draft. Uh, Maybe we will start doing a weekly breakdown of the Jordan documentary. I don't know. Whatever you guys... If you guys have topics you want us to discuss, please send them to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. If you have talked about questions you'd like us to answer... Also email those to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. If you enjoy The Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and a rating if you could, too. It helps us get the word out. Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on Spotify or Apple Music. 
Follow me on Twitter at SLMandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, what are you waiting for? You can get 40% off an annual subscription by using this link, theathletic.com slash theaudible. That's 40% off your subscription to The Athletic. So come on, get over here.